Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the GOP's long quest for an imperial presidency, starting with Nixon, but now accelerating with frightening plans developed by Trump's inner circle and the Heritage Foundation that envision an even more powerful imperial presidency crowning Trump King Donald I as America's first elected dictator. Joining us is Joseph Lowndes, a professor of political science at the University of Oregon and an expert on conservatism, the Freedom Caucus, social movements, the GOP, race and elections. He is the co-author of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. And his forthcoming book is Adventures in Post-Democracy. And we'll discuss his article at the Washington Post, Trump Wants No Limits on Presidential Power. That's not new for the GOP. Then we'll look into the 70-year history of the military-industrial complex's consolidation, privatization, outsourcing, job cuts, federal inaction, and the hunt for larger profits that has created a perfect storm which now hobbles security assistance for Ukraine and potentially for future conflicts as well. Joining us is Michael Brenners, the interim director of the Brady-Johnson Programme, in Grand Strategy and a lecturer in history at Yale University. He's the author of For Might and Right, Cold War Defense Spending and the Remaking of American Democracy, and we'll discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, How America Broke Its War Machine, Privatization and the Hollowing Out of the U.S. Defense Industry. Then finally, following Georgia Maloney's friendly visit to the White House last Thursday, We'll investigate the true face of the Italian party she leads and its fascist roots and speak with David Broder, an historian of the Italian far right. He is a regular contributor to the New Statesman and Internationale, as well as the Europe editor for Jacobin. His books include The Rebirth of Italian Communism, Dissident Communists in Rome, 1943-1944, First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy, and most recently, Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. And we'll discuss his op-ed at the New York Times, What's Happening in Italy is Scary, and It's Spreading. And joining us now is Joseph Lowndes, a professor of political science at the University of Oregon, who is an expert on conservatism, the Freedom Caucus, social movements, the GOP, race and elections. He's the author of From the New Deal to the New Right, Race and the Origins of Modern Conservatism, and the co-author of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race in the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. And he has an article at the Washington Post, Trump Wants No Limits on Presidential Power, That's not new for the GOP. And a forthcoming book out soon, Adventures in Post-Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joseph Lowndes. Thank you, Ian. It's nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Joe. And your recent article in the Washington Post, I guess in, in many ways it followed the revelations in the New York Times about what Trump and his closest aides are planning uh, if they win the presidency in 2024. And it's they call it Project 2024. So that's an incredibly alarming menu of authoritarian power grabs. And of course, we're seeing this happening all around the world, particularly now in Israel. But your piece ends with the, with the warning, we are now in a dangerous political moment, but it has been a long time coming. So expand on that, if you will. 
Sure. So I, as you said, we are in this uh, uh, moment right now where uh, conservative organizations have now built a coalition with extraordinary funding to uh, set up a series of activities in the Beltway to create the possibility for a real authoritarian presidency should uh, Trump or another Republican uh, get elected in 2024. And that includes, you know, training, vetting and training thousands of potential staffers, churning out legal briefs uh, to make the case for uh, expanded authoritarian power by the by the presidency, uh, kind of blueprints for how to uh, manage and dominate the federal bureaucracy, how to bring federal agencies under direct control of the president, uh, and any number of other things. And so this is this is something that it is uh, distinctly Trumpist insofar as it really amplifies or kind of supercharges a sense of presidential authority in two ways. One, that the, the executive branch is all meant to come under the direct control of the presidency, which is not the case now. The, the, the executive branch shares powers with Congress and of course with the Supreme Court, uh, over or how to interpret what happens in various federal agencies within various elements of the bureaucracy. And the civil service itself is meant to operate independently from the president. So part of this uh, move is to kind of bring all these things under the control of the president himself or herself. Uh, and part of it is to uh, make the executive branch the dominant branch in American government, more dominant than Congress, more dominant than the courts, more dominance than the system of federalism. And so this is these are the two elements of it which are important, the presidential control of the entire branch and presidential dominance or executive dominance in national politics. I'm, I'm happy to take you back through the, the history of how this grew, if, you, if you'd like. Well, I, I do want to talk about that, and in particular talk about Dick Cheney and Sam Alito as well, who are characters in this saga, but it seems, though, that the Supreme Court, many have argued, for example, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, have argued that the Supreme Court has been captured by the American plutocracy or America's right-wing plutocracy. Who is behind this Trump power grab? Is it the right-wing plutocracy? I mean, they're working out of the Heritage Foundation. They certainly take they're funded by plutocrats, but they're also funded by corporate interests as well. So give us a sense of who's behind this and whether you agree that we've already, in effect, lost one branch to the plutocrats and uh, we could lose another branch of our separation of powers, government, to Trump. But is he backed by the same plutocrats who've captured the Supreme Court? You know, it's certainly the case that you have kind of a, a network of, of right-wing and, um, and kind of far-right donors who, you know, some of them known, some of them not known, who are uh, funding this, not just uh, Heritage, who's kind of out in front of this entire uh, operation, but uh, a number of other groups that are involved. There's one called the Conservative Partnership Initiative, which is under the aegis of Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, and there's other ones as well. It's not clear entirely. Some of these are set up as 501c3s, and so it's as charities, they don't have to uh, register uh, their donations in the same way. So it's not entirely clear, but there are 
uh, evangelical organizations, Christian nationalist groups, which are part of this. There are kind of right-wing, some right-wing libertarian groups, some more traditional conservative organizations, donor groups, etc. And so there's, you know, there's, it's kind of a, what, what we're seeing here is really kind of a blending of kind of the traditional right with elements of the far right uh, to kind of make this happen. You know, and, and part of it, we have to look at not just the donors from above, but the uh, really the voter base below. I mean, this couldn't happen if the Republican Party in the electorate didn't have an extraordinary appetite for kind of Caesarist or authoritarian power in their in their president. In terms of the courts, you know, this starting to come back a little bit through this history. Bush v. Gore in 2000 uh, was a was a, a key moment uh, in terms of the uh, relationship of the Supreme Court and the Republican presidency when they when the court made an extraordinary decision to um, step in and decide the election for George Bush, which had never happened before, which then puts the court in a relationship with the presidency that had not been there previous. One thing to note about about Bush v. Gore on Bush's legal team. There were three justices, actually, or three three lawyers who uh, would go on to be on the contemporary Supreme Court. John Roberts, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, and Brett Kavanaugh were all, uh, you know, on Bush's legal team and Bush v. Gore. They all end up finally on the Supreme Court. Now, in terms of the court's own legal theory, there's there's that's a different, a connected issue, but it's not simply about donations, but about a growing idea of the importance of presidential power via the Supreme Court's uh, interpretation. This goes back to to Scalia decisions that or, or dissents that Scalia made in the in the 1980s during the Reagan administration. But it also goes back to Sam Alito, who was in Reagan's Office of Legal Counsel, who, along with David Addington and others, kind of made a, a strong case for uh, for presidential power. So there are just there are different levels and, and waves of this that are all kind of coming together that um, that move back through the Supreme Court, but through justice, both through legal theory and through strategies in the Republican Party. We are now in a moment, by the way, when you have a relationship of both uh, Republican or both party activists and social movement activists connected to the Supreme Court in a way that's historically new but it's partly tied to this uh, issue of the growing imperial presidency. And another player, of course, in the history of, uh, of how long the GOP has been uh, moving in the direction of authoritarianism and also the imperial presidency, which is in your article is framed around Nixon. And a key player, of course, is Dick Cheney. It's a little ironic, isn't it? Dick Cheney's daughter is the one that's one of the few Republicans standing up against Trump, and she, <laughs> yes, lost, her, she lost her seat as a result. It's almost Shakespearean in a way, because Cheney really is, you know, at the heart of this. And part of that story is that Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld were both in the Nixon administration in '68 and again in '72, and watched uh, watched Watergate happen and saw it as a congressional power grab and a power grab by the, uh, by the press to humiliate the president and to kind of, draw, kind of draw down presidential power. This is not, wasn't simply a Republican versus Democratic issue. This was a Congress versus the presidency issue because it's, you know, these, these were 
conflicts that also involved the Johnson administration, particularly in regard to Vietnam prior to Nixon. But with Watergate, uh, Congress really asserts its authority over the presidency, forces Nixon to resign, and then in the years that follow, uh, push forward a series of investigations on uses of the FBI and the CIA and other kind of executive security apparatus agencies. And Cheney was in the Ford administration as well and thought that Congress had really achieved something in really humiliating the presidency. And so this really stuck with him. He fought back hard while in Ford's administration against Congress. Then when Reagan wins in 1980, uh, that same election, Cheney uh, runs for a House seat in Wyoming. And during that time, sees himself surrounded by Democrats who are going after Reagan, particularly in regard to the wars in El Salvador and Nicaragua, and Congress's um, insistence that Reagan administration can't simply fund um, anti-communist rebels in Nicaragua, the Contras. And he makes the case that the president shouldn't have to. The president should be able to do uh, what he wants there. And then, you know, the, the Reagan administration tries to go around this in what's famously known as Iran-Contra, and it's a scandal that he's partly brought low by. There's a number of uh, indictments that came out of it and a few convictions. And this, again, was was congressional power exerted against uh, presidential authority. Cheney is also in the administration of George H.W. Bush and tries to get him to go into Kuwait without congressional approval. Uh, and then he comes back again in the administration of George W. Bush, here again now with Rumsfeld, and he really makes a hard case for what is now being called the unitary executive theory. Working with Sam Alito and other people, he makes the case that uh, based on Alexander Hamilton's writings in the Federalist Papers primarily, but also elsewhere, that uh, presidential power is, is singular and unitary, is not connected to the other branches, and it must act with, with autonomy and can do so with, with secrecy as well. And this is what and this is what authorizes, um, you know, John Hughes torture memos, uh, you know, extraordinary, you know, um, renditions, uh, illegal wiretapping of, uh, of American citizens. All these, all kinds of things come out of this theory and are justified in in George W. Bush's um, Office of Legal Counsel. And this kind of is what really begins to set the table for uh, what will come later with Trump. And Bill Barr was a part of that too, right? Bill Barr is a part of that, yes. Um, Bill Barr early on is uh, making the case in George H.W. Bush's administration uh, about the importance of presidential power and not having it controlled from the outside. And uh, Barr will come back famously as Trump's DOJ uh, um, uh, attorney general and will use federal power in really disturbing ways in the streets of Portland, uh, for instance, uh, or in any number of, of, of other of other ways, he's making a you know a, a case for that. He finally does not support the idea of that there was an election theft in 2020. But he has he certainly in his in his role pushed hard to allow the president to militarize the Department of Homeland Security, federal marshals, border patrol, etc. To attack American citizens, to repress American citizens, to carry out extrajudicial killings, uh, all, all kinds of things that, you know, which which became kind of um, part of the courts during the summer of 2020 as the Trump administration tried to suppress Black Lives Matter protests. 
and a lot of it right in your backyard, right, in Portland. Yes, I mean, it was extraordinary to be up in Portland during that time, during during the July, particularly, of um, 2020, and when there were, you know, unmarked vans showing up and snatching activists off the street and, and uh, questioning them uh, without giving any identification, holding them and then letting them go, or or moving to not just protect a federal courthouse during protests in Portland, but attacking the protesters, moving out through the city, cooperating with the local police force there to um, subdue anti-fascist and Black Lives Matter activists. And it was, you know, with full Kevlar every night and rubber bullets and impact grenades and, you know, extraordinary violence night after night. So is that coming, though? I mean, uh, albeit, uh, as I I quoted earlier, the last line in your article at the Washington Post, we are now in a dangerous political moment, but it has been a long time coming. Trump is on on the stump, is making it clear that he sees himself as a kind of reincarnation of Mussolini. I am, you know, I am your retribution. I'm standing in the way of the deep state, and we've got to get rid of the deep state purge it, uh, destroy it. It's a myth, of course. There's no deep state. If there were a deep state, there wouldn't have been January the 6th. There wouldn't have been 9-11. I mean, it's an absurd notion, but it seems to be having traction in, in the Trump world. So well, do you, you think... Know, you go ahead. In part by the deep state, really, by now, is just, is just simply the federal bureaucracy, right? right. They, they want to be able to uh, control federal agencies. These are... You know whether it's the um, whether it's the Fed or whether it's the FCC or whatever other agents they want to bring these things entirely under presidential control and they don't want to uh, they want agencies not to spend money that Congress has appropriated for programs that Republicans don't like and you know this also goes back to George W. Bush who you know used you know his his uh, faith-based initiatives to you know to force federal agencies to uh, hand over monies to uh, Christian organizations to run programs without any, you know, any oversight at all. This is kind of the thing that they're talking about. And what's dangerous about it is that Trump attempted to do this uh, in 2016 across, you know, across uh, different federal agencies and across different cabinet positions. And he was essentially unable to because, you know, it's you've got over 3,000 uh, employees in the, um, you know, in the executive branch who are civil servants, and there was resistance, and it was difficult for him to 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 do this. It was difficult for him to make the legal cases for it. It was difficult for him to to carry out the firings he wanted to. It was difficult for him to having fired people to replace them with uh, with loyalists. Now they have they're coming in armed with arguments that they will take straight to the Supreme Court, which they can expect a friendly reception from. Now they have thousands of vetted potential staffers who they can right away slot into positions uh, throughout the executive branch. Now they are making the case that they can they can fire what have been uh, protected civil service uh, positions. Now they have you know have set it up so that they um, the president can hive off congressional oversight of agencies from Congress. So there's a lot that can happen. And it's really even difficult to think through what the extraordinary authoritarian possibilities of this are, because we're, it's, we're entirely in new territory. And this could also mean, so for instance, you could think about the uh, Federal Elections Commission. 
you can think, you know, this this could mean an end to U.S. elections uh, of the presidency. This could mean, you know, the the installation of an authoritarian regime that there's no coming back from. I mean, there's it is I, I'm not generally a, a Cassandra about these things, but this kind of this could be a fundamental shift in the exercise of uh, executive power, which which upends the Constitution as we know it and taking it in directions that we um, we can't see. Well, Joseph Land, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, thanks for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Joseph Lowndes, who's a professor of political science at the University of Oregon and an expert on conservatism, the Freedom Caucus, social movements, the GOP, race and elections. He's the author of From the New Deal to the New Right, Race and the Southern Origins of Modern Conservatism, and co-author of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. And he has a forthcoming book, Adventures in Post-Democracy, and an article at the Washington Post, Trump wants no limits on presidential power. That's not new for the GOP. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into the 70-year history of the military-industrial complexes, privatization and outsourcing and hunt for larger profits, which has created a perfect storm that now hobbles security assistance for Ukraine. Freestyle lyrics of fury. My third eye make me shine like jury. You're just a renter, rapper. Your rhymes are minimum made. I'll be here when it fade. And watch it flip like a renegade. I can't wait to break and eliminate on every trade of a snake. So stay awake and follow and follow because the tempo's a trail. The stage is a cage. The mic is a third rail. I rock him. All that should be killed to crawl while others say don't hate nothing at all except hatred. Disillusion words like bullets bark as human gods aim for their mark Make everything from toy guns that spark to flesh-colored Christs that glow in the dark It's easy to see without looking too far that not much is really sacred Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Brenners, who's the Interim Director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy and a lecturer in history at Yale University. He's the author of For Might and Right, Cold War Defense Spending and the Remaking of American Democracy. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, How America Broke Its War Machine, Privatization and the Hollowing Out of the U.S. Defense Industry. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Brennus. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And uh, your article points out that when the U.S. was the arsenal of democracy in World War II, the government basically owned, what, 90% of what was produced. And over the years, in fact, you make this point, I'll just quote from your article, this 70-year history of consolidation, privatization, outsourcing, job cuts, federal inaction, and a hunt for larger profits has created a perfect storm that now hobbles security assistance for Ukraine and potentially for future conflicts as well. So that's the story, right? In spite of the fact that politicians and journalists are saying that we're going to become the arsenal of democracy for Ukraine, it's not quite working out that way. Yeah, I think that's right, that that um, what we've had really since you know, since the 1960s, and that's escalated since the 1990s, is the 
increasing privatization of the defense industry and the consolidation of the defense industry to the point that uh, we don't have the productive capacity to give Ukraine the weapons that it's lobbying for, um, particularly small arms and ammunition. And that is not a um, it's not a recent development. There are, there are many commentators when the war first uh, happened in February 2022 and, and as the war evolved uh, since then, who were saying, uh, as you said, there will be the arsenal of democracy, the America is back, um, so on and so forth. But uh, we've now gotten to a point where I think this history that I pointed to in the, affairs, in the foreign affairs piece is, is, show, is manifesting. Um, and that we don't have sufficient plants, we don't have sufficient companies, we don't have sufficient labor to produce the amount of weapons that are needed uh, to supply to Ukraine and that the Ukrainians uh, are, are rightfully asking for. And in one day, Ukraine burns through as many 155 millimeter howitzer shells as the only U.S. factory produces in a month. And this is a factory mm -hmm. that... Since 2004, only one plant in Missouri produced ammunition for the entire U.S. military, down from five during the Vietnam War. And then the, the factory that produced black powder, which was actually government-owned but then was run by a contractor, it had an explosion and destroyed the factory, and it hasn't been rebuilt because there wasn't enough money in it. That's the pattern, right? That's, the, that's correct, and I think um, another point that I raised in the piece was that it's not just the privatization of the industry um, that is the lack of government control and oversight of the industry going back to an era of World War II where the government controlled much of defense production, created so-called a government-owned, uh, uh, government-operated plants. Uh, now you have government-owned but um, contractor-operated plants, which allows contractors more leeway in the production of material, which is allowed, therefore, in the in the contracting process, profits to dictate the outcomes. And so uh, we have the privatization of the industry, the lack of government oversight, or you know, much more so in, in the delivering of goods as opposed to the actual creation of, of, of those goods. But uh, in the long run, it means that the companies can dictate how the government receives the weapons, how, it, how they get produced. Uh, and on their terms, and profit ultimately wins the day. And so that 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 um, that plant that you that you mentioned that hasn't been rebuilt, it was because basically it was just wasn't profitable after uh, it burned down. Um, and so then the war in Ukraine happens, and then we realize, oh, this was a mistake. But that takes a while to, and, and it's still not happening. It takes a while to uh, reconfigure your defense industrial base. It takes a while to get that plant up and running. And and it, indeed, it's. There's no prospects at the moment to have that plant and many other plants um, like it that should be producing ammunition and other small arms uh, up and running anytime soon. Well, Howard Hughes, who, of course, benefited greatly from the military-industrial complex, he once said that the fastest way to get rich in America is to get a government contract. And <laughs> <laughs> he certainly proved that. But one of the reasons why the prosaic stuff is not being made and we're running out of it, at least the Ukrainians are running out of it, and the industrial capacity is simply not there to uh, meet the demand of a real war. It basically is to do with the way the military-industrial complex operates, and that is they, instead of building a Timex, they, want, they always build a Rolex. I mean, that's <laughs> because there's more profit in it, right? 
True. Well, there's um, been an emphasis on, particularly again after the 1990s, after the Cold War, when the defense industry overall was uh, in a panic over what its future might be. And the government, the Clinton administration came to the industry. Uh, this is infamously in the the quote, the quote unquote last supper, uh, last dinner, last supper with with defense contractors um, and Clinton officials where the Clinton administration representatives of the Clinton administration said, you're going to have to consolidate. You're going to have to uh, merge because there's simply not enough weapons that need. we don't need the, the amount of weapons that you're building for decades. And, and now um, you need to to build uh, come together and build uh other weapons, other types of things. And what contractors believe the government wanted and indeed what the government re requested were big ticket items like um, uh, F-22s, eventually F-35s, uh, expensive weaponry that was experimental in many cases, hadn't been tested or, or had been obviously contracts that had, had contractors had bid for these weapons. But the uses of these weapons were mostly for, you know, going after terrorists, yes, um, but preparing for the prospects of another kind of large scale war, which was not on the horizon at the time. Um, but to your point, the way the way in which these companies built these weapons and, and lobbied for them and, and uh, got contracts uh, from the government uh, for them um, ultimately had to do with that these were the most profitable items that uh, they could they could build and that they could therefore survive this post-cold war period of what they thought would be austerity for them uh, and then these expensive weapons often as is the case both in contemporary and historical terms they can't be built and delivered on time so they lead to cost overruns and the government funds those overruns, which leads to, in the end, more profits. And so you have something like uh, the F-35 now, which is going to lead to billions and billions in overruns uh, over the, the the life cycle of the plane up until 2050, um, which is going to obviously create a lot of, of uh, profits for the industry, but also cause taxpayers to uh, pay for those profits as well. But the justification for the military-industrial complex, which of course is a term that President Eisenhower coined in his final address, which was a warning to the U.S. and to the government. And of course it was in the original draft of the speech, it was the military-industrial congressional complex. But out of deference to the Congress, I mean, he changed the, the, the line that Milton had written. So the point I'm trying to make here is that basically the justification is military Keynesianism, is that these are job-creating programs, and that's why the defense contractors put plants all around the country where various powerful Congress people are, and that's the justification for the massive defense budget, $886 billion at the moment, and, and that's nothing compared to what it really is because they've sloughed off uh, the... Nuclear weapons to the Department of Energy, the Coast Guard's on a separate budget, vet Veterans Affairs on a separate budget. It's more like a trillion at least. So, I mean, it's the least efficient way to, to create jobs. And as your article points out, that the defense industry continues to shed American workers. The U.S.-based defense workforce would reach its height in the 1980s with 3.2 million people. Consist it's consistently declined to the present-day number of 1.1 million. 
So it's not even a good jobs program, but it's the only thing that there's bipartisan agreement on. The, the Democrats and the, and the Republicans all rubber stamp the defense budget. No, I think that's there's a lot to that. I would say, you know, the parochial politics that are embedded in the military industrial complex, um, the need for jobs, um, the uh, support that the industry receives from from congressional officials because constituents, their constituents uh, benefit from the jobs created by the defense industry. That's that's not going to go anytime soon. Um, the the structure of the industry is such that you know we've had this you know seventy year you know industrial behemoth that's dictating, as you said, the creation of jobs in many ways uh, in this country. That's not going to go away. And so, what I offered were some plausible paths. I thought to uh, start making the industry more efficient and to make it less of a of a profit-seeking or profit-making uh, industry that was on the backs of taxpayers and um, American citizens overall, American people overall, and start you know, generating weapons that are actually needed for the current climate that we're in and also not function as a jobs program. And I think that greater government oversight and control of the industry uh, to produce small arms and ammunition is in the short term is good and also efforts that are championed by uh, congressional officials like Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, who's sought to break up uh, the consolidation of the industry, make it more accountable to government. I think those are, are immediate steps that are on the on the they're plausible right now, as opposed to start you know talking about you know, dismantling uh, the military industrial complex or things like or slogans like that. I mean, that might make certain people feel good. But I think in the in the in the short and long terms, that's just not possible right now. And I think we have to really think about, as you said, um, in in the ways in which the military industrial complex functions as a job program, but also as a as an efficient jobs program and how you can make the industry more efficient, deliver the weapons that's supposed to, and less um, Americans making making Americans less dependent on it for jobs. I think that all begins with congressional influence bipartisan hopefully that will intervene in the ways that the industry is allowed to function at the moment so just in the last couple of minutes then i'm beginning to wonder michael whether the u.s really wants ukraine to win the war because they've set these red lines oh you can't have tanks you can't have uh, stingers you can't have this you can't have that and then months later they relent and start delivering them albeit slowly. And the latest thing, of course, they've said you can't have F-16s. Even though the Ukrainians don't want them, they've already got MiG-29s from the Poles and from Slovakia, which all they need is an upgrade that the Israelis will do, and they could actually have some air cover because this armoured thrust to break the Russian lines, which is proving to be difficult, if that were to happen, they'd be completely vulnerable to Russian air power because they don't have an air force, the Ukrainians, or what they have has basically been shot down. So, I don't know, do you have that same suspicion? I mean, that we're not really supporting them in a way that they need support, or is it just because of what you've written about in the foreign affairs and what we've been discussing here today, that the problem is at, at on our doorstep and our own military industrial complex? I think it's a it's a combination of factors. I think um, 
I think one is that we don't really have a clear strategy for what victory in Ukraine would look like. I think we don't have a sense of of a strategy in the short and long terms, like what would the United States do in terms of trying to you know, bring about some sort of negotiated peace settlement. I don't think the United States is in a, uh, I think obviously we all were, including the, you know, the United States and me personally was caught, um, caught taken aback by the invasion uh, and you have to develop a strategy, you know, on those terms. But I think uh, there hasn't been, in my view, a proactive approach to trying to engage um uh, in in some sort of long term long term vision of of what commitment to Ukraine would entail, and I do think that you know I don't want to put it necessarily in terms of the United States doesn't want uh, the Ukrainians to win. I think they they certainly do, and the, and the Ukrainians have uh, to your point about F-16s. The Ukrainians have lobbied for F-16s um, and and are getting them by all accounts uh, eventually soon. Uh, uh, yeah, in the short, in the, in the year, yeah. That's a long term. time in this war. True, totally. I, I mean, I completely agree. Um, but I think there has to be two things that happen you know, to answer your question. Two things that 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 must occur concurrently. One is that the United States needs to be open and honest with the American people about what a protracted commitment to Ukraine would entail, um, and then uh, create a some sort of efforts for a renewed defense industrial base um, to support that effort. And I think too, concurrent with that, as I said, would have to be uh, an honest account uh, of what a potential post-war negotiated settlement might look like. And I think right now what we have are um, increasing, you know, we have a lot of public support for the war, much, much more so among Democrats than Republicans, it seems at the moment. Um, there's still a sense that from the Biden administration that they're going to fund the Ukrainians and fund the war. But Americans historically, and I'm, I'm speaking as a historian now, not so much a commentator, historically Americans grow tired of conflicts. They don't like protracted conflicts. They don't, whether, whether they're good wars or bad wars, they, they, we don't want to fight them in long, in, in, for years on end. Um, and I think that domestic politics in that sense is going to going to dictate how how we support the Ukrainians and where we support the Ukrainians and what types of weapons we send to the Ukrainians. And so I think, again, you have to be forthright with the American public about what a long-term commitment would entail, creating a renewed defense industrial base around that. And the second would be a third thing would be a would be a efforts to, to try to get the public on board with a negotiated peace settlement that wouldn't give Ukraine potentially everything, but would give them hopefully a lot um, and would seek to do something with, with Putin as well. But that's just, that's me talking as a, as a, as again, both as a historian and a commentator. And I think we, we have to, we have to see what happens in the future. Well, Michael Brennan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure. And again, I may speak with Michael Brennis, who's an interim director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy and a lecturer in history at Yale University. He's the author of Full Might and Right, Cold War Defense Spending and the Remaking of American Democracy. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, How America Broke Its War Machine, Privatization and the Hollowing Out of the U.S. Defense Industry. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the true face of the Italian party, Giorgia Maloney leads, and its fascist roots. The Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, 
bullets loading You're old enough to kill But not for voting You don't believe in war But what's that gun you're toting And even the Jordan River has Bodies floating But you tell me Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Italy is David Broder, an historian of the Italian far right. He's a regular contributor to the New Statesman and the Internazionale, as well as the European editor of Jacobin. His books include The Rebirth of Italian Communism, Dissident Communists in Rome, 1943-1944, First, they took Rome, how the populist right conquered Italy, and most recently, Mussolini's grandchildren, fascism in contemporary Italy. And he has an op-ed at the New York Times, What's Happening in Italy is Scary and It's Spreading. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Broder. Hi, thanks a lot for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And last Thursday, President Biden met with Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney in the White House, and it was a bit of a love fest. But you're saying that there's a hidden story here in spite of the handshakes and the fact that Giorgia Maloney is cooperating with the U.S. and with NATO in helping Ukraine and not siding with Russia. So let's just touch on the White House meeting. What do you think went on there behind the scenes? We saw the, the, the smiles and the handshake, but what, what do you think went on behind the scenes? Well, I think the reality is that um, the expectations from the Biden administration uh, from Italy aren't particularly high. You know, what do they want? They want the Italian government to fall in line behind their foreign policy, their line on Ukraine. And Italy is certainly one of the countries where there's the biggest risk that they've been. Uh, Italy is one of the countries in Europe where the public opinion is least supportive of uh, military aid to Ukraine. Uh, And in fact, within the right wing parties who are currently in government in Italy, uh, that lack of support for Ukraine is particularly strong. So what they want is for Maloney to hold her own party and her allies in line with military support for Ukraine. There was a business summit called Chernobyl. It's a bit like the Italian version of the World Economic Forum uh, shortly before the election. And uh, Matteo Salvini, the other far right leader in Italy, he kind of said, well, you know, we support sanctions against uh, Russia for now, but not not when they start hurting us, when they start hurting Italians. And Meloni replied, no, for our international credibility, we need to uh, support Ukraine. Uh, to the hilt. So in reality, Italy isn't a particularly important uh, military supplier or supplier of humanitarian or economic aid to Ukraine. Uh, But I think symbolically, it's very important that it's seen to be in the Western camp uh, for Maloney's government, for its international legitimacy, that it's um, seen to have Washington's blessing. Uh, So I think the fact that she was granted a state visit and that it was so 
Pally is rewarding her for that. Um, is she going to be the head of the G7, by the way? Yes, that's. Uh, I think it's at the start of next year. Right. So, but the real story, which you've written about, David, in the New York Times, uh, what's happening in Italy is scary and it's spreading, is that she's really the leader of the European right, which is gaining traction across the board in Sweden and uh, in, even in Finland. They're actually in the government and uh, alternative for Deutschland in, in Germany, mm -hmm. the AFD. And of course, Britain has been paralyzed by the stupidity of the, Amer of the British right by foisting that Brexit on them, which has paralyzed them, and they still can't get out from under it. So I don't know whether the right in, in the UK has been discredited, but it's flourishing elsewhere, is it not? And Georgia Maloney is probably, is she the leader, would you say? Yes, certainly. I, I think she's very much uh, looked up to across the European right and including in Britain. Um, only a month or so ago, she visited Rishi Sunak in London and he and his government basically asked her to uh, endorse his policy on migration, which is to send uh, failed asylum seekers, no matter what country they come from, uh, to send them to uh, detention in Rwanda. So, you know, Meloni's party has a fascist past and origins, which everyone you know, knows about. Uh, but I think she's no longer sort of excluded or, or sort of frowned upon. And, you know, in Italy, of course, this party and its ancestors have been in government on and off for the last 30 years. Uh, you know, Silvio Berlusconi used to boast that he constitutionalized and legitimized the fascists, brought them into his government. So I think a few years ago, and, you know, as you'll guess from my uh, accent, I'm British myself. Um, I think a few years ago, the British right wing press were very much thinking, you know, where is the next country that's going to follow Brexit? Where's the, you know, is Italy or the Netherlands or one of these countries going to follow Britain out? And I think that's really not going to happen. And what we're instead seeing is right-wing forces trying to change the European Union uh, from within, uh, in particular with regards to things like uh, migration policy. So in several countries, like the ones you mentioned, Finland and Sweden, uh, we're seeing far-right parties joining government together with pro-European centre-right parties, uh, but with uh, strong anti-migrant uh, identity politics. And of course, we have to mention uh, both... Hungary and Poland, they've already been captured by right-wing governments. So just in terms of the fascist roots, though, of Maloney and her party, after World War II, right after World War II, of course, in Germany, they purged the Nazis. You know, they re-educated the, the people and the students in schools, and former Nazis weren't able to get in, into important positions. There was a real stigma. But that didn't happen in Italy, did it? Well, I think that um, in in Germany too, it was quite slow in coming. I think there's, uh, you know, in the fifties and sixties, probably in West Germany, the picture wasn't so great. But particularly from Willy Brandt's government, uh, Social Democrats onwards, it started to change. I think really the last thirty years, though, Germany's made huge progress in terms of historical memory. Uh, whereas Italy's headed in the opposite direction. Uh, you know, in, in Italy after 1945, yes, there was no kind of purge of the state, 
uh, only uh, a few hundred uh, officials were removed from office after the fall of the fascist regime. Uh, but you had these big parties that were born of a, a national resistance movement, which you know happened in Italy and, and Germany didn't really have. So you had this kind of political anti-fascism that was very much uh, the directing force in Italian democracy. Uh, but then you also had, then this is the contradiction, you also had a party of people who were proud that they had been fascists and said that they were still fascists. And that's the party that Fratelli d'Italia, Giorgio Maloney's party, uh, comes from. It has its logo within its, within its own, um, and it is the tradition of fascism. So, you know, they've abandoned uh, the attempt to seize power by force and cancel democracy, uh, but their political forefathers were, you know, self-described fascists and continued to call themselves fascists uh, into the 1990s. Um, there's always been a strong part of Italian public opinion uh, that certainly wasn't, you know, celebrating the feats of the resistance or don't think that fascism is kind of condemned by history. Uh, and we see a lot in Italy this kind of self-justifying narrative where, and very common even among the figures of the current government, which is to say, well, of course, Mussolini made a mistake getting involved with Adolf Hitler. Of course, Italian uh, support for the Holocaust was bad, but really kind of up until 1938, up until the embrace with Hitler, well, fascism wasn't so bad, and actually its communist opponents were worse. Uh, so what we see today is a very strong uh, effort to prettify uh, fascism and pretend that it could have turned out other than it actually did. But across Europe, in terms of what's fueling the right and why they're getting political support from voters, is the emigration issue, right? the uh, wave of immigrants that came when Russia entered the uh, Syrian war. At that time, the head of the Sakir, the head of the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, said that Putin was weaponizing refugees. And the <clears> Germans <throat> were able to take a lot of people in and without any problems. But Hungary behaved disgracefully, said Poland. And, and Italy continues to get migrants coming across the Mediterranean, many of whom drown. And they're sticking them in kind of warehouses, aren't they, and putting them in limbo. So give us a picture of the emigration situation across Europe and how much it's driving people to support right-wing parties. Well, I think uh, the the problem I have in answering your question is, is I guess I, I, I don't think that the uh, the 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 claim that that these countries are kind of overwhelmed by the refugee so-called refugee crisis, or that they're literally unable to cope with the number of people arriving, uh, I don't think is true. And I think um, the the problem is, you know, as you said in your question, I mean, say Germany at the height of uh, people arriving in kind of 2014, 2015, 2016. Uh, had noticeably weaker uh, rise of the far right than some of the other countries uh, you mentioned, uh, including Italy and Poland and Hungary and so on. Uh, I think what's happened is that uh, right-wing parties and even uh, kind of traditional Christian Democrat and centre-right parties uh, have engaged in a kind of race with far-right parties who openly take up ideas like great replacement theory uh, the idea that there's a uh, a plot by usurers, speculators, international institutions, the left, to ethnically replace uh, white Christian Europeans uh, with Muslims and Africans. 
uh, and we still see ministers in Milani's government uh, use this language. Um, so, you know, I think that on the right, that kind of obsession with civilizational decline and ethnic threat has become very prominent in their political messaging. But I think the reason why they're winning elections is a bit more complicated and also has to do with the fact that the uh, left uh, in many countries is unable to uh, get its voters to turn out at all. So what we're seeing is the right wing win elections uh, with very low turnouts. And that's certainly what happened in Italy. Um, in other countries where the left has you know, recent achievements in government, notably in Spain, uh, the pictures are a bit more mixed. Um, also, it should be said, I think, that you know, in certain European countries, including Britain, uh, if we compare Britain to Italy, there's probably a stronger record of kind of anti-racist movements and, and so on. So the, the political language around immigration isn't quite so, isn't so explicitly racist. Um, but nonetheless, I think we're also seeing, even in, in Britain, kind of certain figures in the right wing of the Tory party who do want to imitate uh, people like Milani, who do want to legitimise people like Marine Le Pen. Uh, so I think overall, the barriers between centre-right and far-right are falling. Um, I think there's a kind of um, quite commonplace myth, which is that people who vote for far-right parties are kind of working-class people who've been abandoned by the left, so switched to the far-right. Uh, but if we look at people who who uh, vote for Milani, normally they're switchers from other right-wing parties. So I think, you know, the far right has, has become stronger within the sort of right-wing uh, base, uh, but it's not necessarily that they're, they're sort of winning over, you know, it's not like, uh, I, I, I kind of want to push back against the idea that they sort of represent the real voice of the people who are fed up with uh, migration and so on. Sure. But it, immigration was more than a subtext in Brexit, wasn't it? Xenophobia, the idea that we've got to close the doors. Oh, no, no, no absolutely. No, of course, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think, you know, a, a reason why that uh, politics is becoming more prominent is that in a time of you know, economic stagnation, when um, the sort of prospects of growth don't look good, when we have increasing climate crisis and so on, uh, these this question of who's allowed to be included, who should be excluded, who is uh, supposedly... Uh, taking an extra slice of the pie that they shouldn't be uh, is becoming much more prominent. So these issues around like citizenship and migration become the way in which kind of economic uh, issues are, are are expressed. But I think you know I think that the I think that after Trump lost, I think there was this kind of uh, a lot of liberals were kind of saying, well, um, this kind of populist moment has passed and everything's going getting back to normal. Uh, and of course, we haven't seen other countries follow Britain out of the EU. Uh, but I think actually these far right parties, uh, you know, even if they lost some elections and so on, you know, they haven't gone away. And I think we're, we're now seeing them increasingly successful in changing the European Union itself. Uh, and in fact, Meloni herself uh, led the recent European uh, Union talks with Tunisia, an, an authoritarian regime that supports great replacement theory. Uh, she led the talks, uh, then accompanied by Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, uh, to outsource migration control to this regime. So, you know, parties like Milani's, they're no longer treated as extremist outsiders, uh, but they're actually setting the tone in uh, European politics. 
But just in the last minute, though, we mentioned what Maloney's all about, and that she's the de facto leader of the European right, which is growing in, in importance and in terms of governments and in terms of the coalitions. Most of the governments in Europe are coalition governments. But it's not just immigration, right? It's uh, the anti-LBGQ, etc. Just give me a brief summary of what they stand for and why they're dangerous. Well, Meloni's party and much of the European right are obsessed with this idea, which is to resist ethnic substitution, to resist the replacement of white Christian Europeans by Africans and Muslims and other hated groups. Uh, what we need is birth rates to go up. We need to promote birth. But as part of that, they're also saying, well, the reason there are more births is because our culture, our society no longer values the traditional family, no longer values motherhood because instead we accept all these alternative lifestyles, and that's what they're trying to push back against. So they're pushing back against uh, same-sex um, marriage, same-sex parenting, uh, even things like lesbian couples um, uh, conceiving through IVF. Um, and you know they want, uh, basically their social model is that women's role is to have children. Um, whenever Meloni is subject to criticism of any kind, uh, in fact, including my own article, uh, she always falls back on this thing of talking about how she's just a mother who has a daughter who she wants a brighter future for and always makes it yeah, this kind of personal story rather than reflecting the fact she's a, a national political leader. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in Italy, we have seen um, same-sex uh, families. Uh, yeah, there's a decree to uh, stop them being recognised. Um, so it's part of the way in which... Um, of of which Fratelli d'Italia claims to celebrate motherhood and parenting and families is not to make the economic conditions easier for people to have kids if they want to. Uh, it's to wage a culture war around who the right kind of parents are and who should have kids. Well, David Broder, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, thanks for having me on. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Whoa.